All right, so if you're new again, thanks for being here. Today we are going to finish up our fall vision series. This has been an eight-week journey, and we're bringing it to a conclusion today. And this series has been all about how we can see a new move of God in our day, how we can see revival or renewal or awakening. There's different ways to say it, but, but how we can see God move in our midst here in the West uh, today. So we've gathered some principles from the, or from the first seven chapters of the book of Acts as it records the story of the very first church in Jerusalem before it exploded onto the scene of the, of the first century world and, and really stepped into the greatest move of God in history as the church began to expand rapidly. And last week we looked at the first part of chapter 6 where uh, the church comes up against a crisis where they don't have enough people to serve tables and take care of the widows. And then a man named Stephen, among others, step up to serve those tables and to become kingdom leaders in the church. In the back half of, of chapter six, which we didn't look at last week, Luke tells us that Stephen actually began preaching. So he didn't only you know, serve tables, he also began preaching and performing great signs and wonders. So he's at the cafe table just like, healing people, doing his thing, right? He's not just serving, he's also uh, seeing powerful ministry. And, and this provoked the religious leaders to seize him and to arrest him and, and to bring him uh, before the religious council. And they accused him of preaching against the law and preaching against the temple. And as they accused him of this, it says that his face looked like that of an angel, okay? So it's so pretty remarkable. It says that in 615, and then most of chapter seven is really a sermon. It's, it's Stephen recounting the story of the Old Testament and, and kind of defending himself through it and showing how it all points to Jesus. It's, it's really remarkable. If you want a really good, uh, or a good summary of the Old Testament, I encourage you to read chapter seven. But, but I wanna look at the very end of chapter seven to close out our series. This is the end of his sermon. He's super kind and encouraging here at the end. Let's check it out. Well, he is kind and encouraging, but he just tells the truth and he's a little bit feisty. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying, until I start saying that to you, don't get mad at me, okay? So, so it says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you now have betrayed and murdered. And and you have received the law as delivered by angels and yet did not keep it. And now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of, the, at the feet of a young man named Saul, who's going to become the Apostle Paul, uh, or later on in our story. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which means he died. And then Luke kind of, re, or he continues the story a bit in the beginning of chapter eight. But the thing we see here is Stephen is the first Christian martyr. He's the first one to die for his faith. And then Luke goes on in, in chapter eight. It says, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Okay, so try to really capture 
like the moment here, right? Stephen was a big leader in the church. Imagine it, if, if one of our, our leaders, one of our beloved people in this church was murdered for their faith, right? This is a terrible moment for the church. But Saul began to destroy the church, it says in verse three, going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Okay, so Stephen's martyrdom, it triggered even greater, a greater persecution against the church and the church begins to scatter out from Jerusalem. Before it had stayed in Jerusalem, now it's actually scattering out. So the Holy Spirit actually ended up using this terrible event to lead uh, to the expansion of the move of God from just Jerusalem out to the world as they took the gospel with them as they scattered. And, and we read about that story in the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, but there's a theme that we're seeing here that every time the enemy tries to stop the move of God, it actually continues to to keep on spreading, okay? So the sermon title today is the continuation of the next move of God. All right, let's pray over it and we'll dive in some more. So Lord, I just pray today that you would have your way in this place, that this word would come to life, that you would speak. I pray that this would not be my own ideas, but that this would be a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I pray that there would be words that just need to be said to certain people today, that they came in not expecting something and then you speak right to their hearts. Lord, we're praying for that for our church, for me, for the whole body to be cut to the heart as we look at your word. So God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. All right, so after World War II, the United States experienced some tremendous years of prosperity. The late 40s and the 50s were just a time of tremendous hope and optimism for the future. However, the arrival of the 1960s actually brought some tremendous upheaval to society. There were so many reasons uh, for this, but I'd like to just name a few. First of all, there's the Vietnam War, which uh, sparked anti-war protests on, on college campuses, and, and this led to political division in society. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened in 1962, and the proliferation of, of the nuclear bomb sparked great fear and made many think that the end of the world was near. And then racial tensions were kind of bubbling up. They were coming to a head as, as uh, segregation was finally being addressed through the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, the, assassin, or the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, who was kind of set to become president, and also Martin Luther King Jr., it shook the world. Uh, the sexual revolution and increased uh, drug use wreaked havoc on young people, and there was also this growing distrust of, in of institutions among young people. They didn't really trust the church anymore. They didn't trust the government and many rebelled against the church, and church attendance dropped dramatically. On top of all this, I don't know if you know this, but there was a, a pandemic in 1968 that was actually pretty bad. And this was a time of great upheaval and uncertainty in society. However, just as we've seen in other revivals, God used this time of decline and this time of upheaval to spark a fresh move of God that is commonly referred to as the Jesus Movement. It started when many hippies began coming to Christ in 1967 in San Francisco. Okay, so they, they gave up drugs, sex, Eastern religions, and the occult, and they turned to Jesus. And Jesus got a hold of them in such a way that they didn't just start going to church, but they actually like, went out and shared their faith vigorously with people. They were earnest in their devotion to Jesus and his mission. And one famous convert was a man named Lonnie Frisbee. Okay, let's go ahead and show a picture of Lonnie on the screen you know, a handsome, a truly handsome chap, like very handsome chap there. He's, I think he's the first one who's actually handsome. But, uh, but anyways, if you don't know, we've been doing revivals for the last eight weeks and show a picture of someone every week. But, but yeah, so these hippies who converted to Christ were often called Jesus freaks. 
And they embraced that as a badge of honor, right? They're like, yeah, we're Jesus freaks. And, and Lonnie Frisbee, he was a gifted evangelist who, who worked along the West Coast. And wherever God was moving, he seemed to be a part of it. He seemed to kind of have something to do with it. In 1968, he was invited to be a part of the Calvary Chapel Church in, in Costa Mesa where Chuck Smith served as pastor. Let's show a picture of Chuck Smith. And, and Chuck was very down to earth and practical, very hardworking, you know, a no-nonsense type of guy. He was a man's man. And then Lonnie, as we kind of talked about, was more of a free spirit, you know, more of a hippie. And they had nothing in common in terms of personality, but God used them as they came together. The combination of Chuck and Lonnie was dynamite. Let's show a picture of them on the beach preaching. You know, it was just a powerful com- or combination. And this story was actually told in the movie The Jesus Revolution. If you saw that, it came out, I think, last summer. I gotta tell you, I have never cried as much as I cried in that movie because I just think there's so many similarities to 1968, that time period, and now. And I really believe that the Lord wants to do something similar in our day. And I just literally wept uh, throughout that whole movie. But, uh, but one eyewitness says that, that it was Lonnie who often drew the crowds because he had these evangelistic gifts. He would draw the crowds, but then the, or the crowds would stay because of Chuck, because Chuck had this, this pastoring ability, this leadership ability to continue actually shepherding uh, the crowds. And, and before they came together, the church was only 80 in attendance, but then after Frisbee arrived, it, it soared to 2,000 in six months. <laughs> I think about that. If that happened here, I don't know what we would do, right? It, it, it soared to 2,000 in six months. That seems, as a church leader, that just seems impossible to me because I know how, how church goes and all that kind of stuff. It just seems impossible. But because God was moving 2,000 people joined the church in six months and it became one of the largest churches in the world and it would later become a movement that is still on the move today that has become 1,500 churches. It's, it's the Calvary movement. At the height of this revival, 200 people were won to Christ every single week. And, and 500 were baptized every month for a period of two years. You talk about the next move of God, right? At, at the baptism services, they would do it in the ocean, uh, or 3,000 people would gather to, or to hear the gospel and to see the baptisms. It's reported that over a two-year span, over 20,000 people came to Christ, and 8,000 were baptized. It was a powerful move of God. And sadly, in 1971, Chuck and Lonnie split. I'm sure there's a lot to the story that, that we don't know, and I'm sure they both had their own reasons or their own part in it, but the primary reason seems to be that Lonnie really struggled to, to kind of surrender his pride and submit under Chuck's leadership. And what happened after the split kind of supports that read of the situation. As Chuck continued to flourish and bear fruit, his ministry expanded, and Lonnie just seemed to struggle. He, he never seemed to have the same power that he had uh, back when he was with Chuck. You know, without Chuck's guidance, Lonnie often would give in to skewed theology, kind of teeter left and right. He, he, he would fall into various types of sin. He ended up divorcing his wife, and, and he fell back into sexual sin that he had been freed of. And, and most who knew Lonnie do genuinely believe that he loved the Lord to the end, but he just had his struggles, and, and something changed after he left Calvary Chapel. It appears that the enemy may have had a hand in, in leading Lonnie out from under Chuck's leadership. When he was under Chuck's leadership, it was a safe place to be. When he let him out, it just really hindered what God could do through Lonnie. And with all that in mind, I want to give you another revival principle. The enemy wants to stop moves of God. He wants to stop moves of God. He wants to stop servants of God, right? He, he wants to stop moves of God. And every move of God 
uh, the enemy is actively trying to stop it from continuing. He does this in so many different ways, but primarily, well, it's not limited to, but I think primarily he, he does it through division among leaders. Oftentimes he'll kind of get them at odds with each other. He does it through pride. He does it through lack of obedience to Jesus and the simple commands of Jesus. He does it through, through churches getting really nervous about the Holy Spirit moving and trying to control the Holy Spirit and say, oh, no, you can't do that here. He does it through, through getting churches to stray from the truth and to begin watering down the gospel. He does it through, through people accommodating sin, uh, through the elevation of excesses in service. So, or so while we don't want to control the Holy Spirit, we also don't want to give into like emotional excess that isn't really the Holy Spirit, but just us trying to have a good time, right? That happens in churches where people are just trying to have a great time. They're coming in, they're like, yeah, it's gonna get wild today. I'm gonna get really crazy and I don't care who knows it, right? It also, or the enemy tries to stop or stop moves of God through churches failing to embrace discipleship. They just want experiences. They want powerful worship services, but they never go on to embrace an actual pattern of discipleship. And, and there's so many other reasons that the enemy tries to stop moves of God, but those are just a few. And, and we've seen some of the enemy's tactics in the book of Acts already, right? From the very beginning of the church, the enemy is trying to cut this move of God off. In Acts 5, we see, or we saw that the enemy influenced Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the apostles, to pretend that they had sold all their possessions and given all the money to the apostles. He, he had, had, had come into them and, and influenced them to, or to lie and, and compromise. And, and thankfully, Peter did not allow that lying to go unaddressed, but he dealt with it. Right? He actually pronounced judgment on them and they died. That was an encouraging Sunday. If you missed that sermon, you wanna go back and listen to it, okay? And, and now here in Acts 6 and 7, we see or see yet another way that the enemy is trying to hinder this move of God. And most obviously, he's seeking to kill Christians, right? He's seeking to literally kill physical bodies and, and, and kill Christians, and, and he's successful with Stephen. But this actually backfires as the church continued to rapidly expand. It actually led to the expansion of the church, and we see this happen all throughout history, that, that, or that when the church is persecuted, it actually tends to expand in the midst of that, that pressure cooker. It's interesting. If the church is like on top of the world, has all the favor of society, it sometimes will struggle and, and fall into lukewarmity. But then when it's persecuted, it starts to expand because the church actually gets hot. It's interesting how that happens. But, but Satan wasn't only trying to kill physical bodies here. But he was also trying to kill the tenderness of the heart of the church. Okay, he was actually seeking to harden the heart of the church by giving them a reason to get bitter. Okay, so, so when people start killing your friends and killing your brothers and sisters in Christ, your natural human instinct is to get bitter, right? To want vengeance. And I think that's something the enemy is trying to do here in Acts chapter seven. Bitterness and unforgiveness is one of Satan's primary modes of attack and is perhaps his most effective form of attack. And this isn't only true in great moves of God, it's, it's true in our own journey spiritually, right? In each of our journeys, the enemy is going to try to make you bitter. If he can get you to be bitter, he can cut off what God is doing in you. And we see this in Ephesians 4. In this passage, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he tells them that the habitual, unconfessed sin can open a window to the demonic in their lives, right? And this is why I preach on repentance almost every week. If you give in to unrepentant, habitual sin, by doing that, you are opening a window to the devil and saying, hey, why don't you come and hang out here? In Ephesians 4 specifically, Paul urges them to resist greed 
and impurity, lying, stealing, anger, bitterness, rage, slander, and so forth. In this context, he says this in verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin, right? So when does anger become sin? When it becomes, you know, uh, or when it becomes vengeance and bitterness, when you start dwelling on it, right? Be angry and, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. To me, that's saying, don't get bitter, right? Don't uh, stew over it and give no opportunity to the devil, Okay, so this word, give no opportunity, I don't really like that translation in the ESV. I think it's a better translation in the NIV where it says foothold. So don't give the devil a foothold. And this word is used 85 to 92, they're not quite sure, but 85 to 92 times in the New Testament. And 99% of the times it's used, it's a spatial term, right? It's referring to a room or location, place, or space. And, And it's the word topos, okay, topos in the Greek, it's a place, any portion or space marked off, as it were, from surrounding space. So Paul is saying we can give the devil a foothold or space in our hearts through habitual sin, including bitterness. So when we choose bitterness, when we choose any habitual sin, we are saying, hey, devil, come and have a guest room in the house of my heart. And when the church is persecuted, the enemy is not simply trying to physically kill God's servants. He's trying to get a guest room in the church by making it bitter and divided. He's trying to choke off what God is doing. And this is why Stephen's response to his persecution is absolutely critical. He nails it, he gets it right, and he ensures that that this move of God would continue and expand. As I read this this morning in my office, I just began to cry. Because it's such a powerful moment. Get this in your bones. He's being pelted with stones. And this is what he says. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Like people like, are literally gritting their teeth, grinding their teeth at him. They're enraged. They're throwing rocks at him. He's getting pelted. And he says, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. Our human instinct tells us that Stephen should have been crying out for justice, right? He should have been asking for vengeance on his enemies, right? Not forgiveness, for vengeance. And this is what all the Jewish martyrs did at the time. There were other Jewish martyrs at the time, and this is what they did. For instance, about 200 years before Jesus' day, a Syrian king took over Jerusalem. He, he desecrated the temple, and he forced the Jews to renounce their law in an attempt to take away their identity as Jews, And many Jews would resist, and they were killed for it. And as they died, they did not say things like this. Instead, they would say things like, you're gonna die, sucker. God is gonna deal with you, right? He's like, you're gonna get punished, right? We serve the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he will deal with you. If not in this life, he'll deal with you in the next life. It's remarkable that although the earliest Christians were Jewish, right? This was their heritage. This is where they came from. They did not die in this way. As Stephen's body is being crushed, he's begging the Lord not to crush them. He's saying, don't do to them what they're doing to me. He's acting just like the Jesus that he was praying to, the Jesus that he was seeing. Okay, when Jesus was crucified, he said this. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is discipleship right here. This is what it looks like to actually be a learner or an apprentice of Jesus, right? Stephen's now facing his own death, and what does he do? He says essentially the same thing. He is setting an example. As the first martyr, he is setting an example for the church. He, 
He's setting an example for future martyrs saying, this is how you die well for Jesus. Think about this. This was pivotal. This was critical that he got this right. He's telling us that if we wanna see God move in and through the church, and if we wanna reach people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, we have to reject bitterness. And we have to choose loving kindness and forgiveness just like Jesus did. I think Stephen knew that the life, health, and vitality of the church depended on it. We can't be vessels of God's power and his presence if we're giving the enemy a guest room in our hearts. And we can't be used by God to bring the gospel to the lost if we hate the lost. That'll preach. We just leave that there, right? It's imperative that we keep our hearts soft and tender before the Lord. That's the most important assignment in your spiritual journey is to keep your heart tender. The Lord is gonna, or not the Lord, the world is gonna give you so many reasons to be angry and bitter. People are gonna hurt you. You know, just like they hurt Jesus. Jesus told us that people are gonna hurt us, right? He said, they're gonna do the same things to you that, uh, that they did to me. And your assignment is to say, I'm gonna protect my heart no matter what happens. And this shows us an important principle for us as we seek the next move of God. If we want the next move of God, we gotta keep the enemy out of our house. Like we gotta say, you ain't allowed here. And we have to actively identify his schemes and then resist those schemes. And that could be bitterness or another scheme. As we push the gospel forward, he's going to oppose us He's gonna send people in situations to discourage us that are gonna bring us down. He's gonna tempt us to give in to sin, you know, just make a little compromise here or there. It's not that big a deal, right? Kind of give sin a spot in our hearts so then it can spread into the body of Christ, right? Because a, a little leaven leavens the whole lump as we saw in 1 Corinthians 5. He, he, he tries to get, you know, or different members of the church to compromise and let that seep into the rest of the church. He's gonna try to make us prideful, bitter, and divided. And we have to resist him. We have to refuse to give him space. And we have to refuse to answer the door when he comes knocking, right? So uh, last week we did the grocery outreach and we'd knock on doors. We're giving out groceries. And I'm like, I can see you sitting in there through the blind. I'm like, I see you in there. Your light was on, then it went off and we started knocking. What's going on here, right? We gotta do that, just light off. We're not here, no one's home, right? When the enemy starts knocking, right? We say, I'm not home, I, I, I don't want you to come in here. And Stephen, he shows us how we do this. He, he shows us how we turn off the light, so to speak. And the key to this is actually in chapter six. So Luke, he, he tells us that his face looked like that of an angel. I, t- I talked about that, but let's look at it in verse 15. It says, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It seems that we're supposed to understand that he was like illuminating some, kind, or some type of light, right? That's where my mind goes when I think his face looked like that of an angel. He's like, like shining, How did he get to this place of shining like an angel? Well, when I read this passage, my mind immediately goes to Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, Moses, he's up on the mountain, he's with God, he gets the 10 commandments, and when he comes off the mountain, his face is shining so much so that people are afraid. It says this in Exodus 34. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But but Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them 
Afterward, all the people of Israel came near and they commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. They gotta block out that, that sunshine, right? We're about to get a veil over the sun here in the winter. Come on, that was stupid. All right, anyways, <laughs> I'm trying. All right, so after a 40-day encounter with God, Moses' face was radiant, right? That's what I pray my life would be like. like I'm just like radiating with the glory of God. And verse 29 tells us that this was the case because he had been talking with God. He had been so deeply in God's presence that his face was reflecting the very glory of God. It appears that this might have been what happened to Stephen too. Or he had such a deep intimacy with Jesus that his physical body reflected it. And we see a glimpse of his intimacy in his death. As he approached death, he gazed into heaven and literally saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus at the right hand of God. It says this in verse 55 and 56, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I think Stephen's intimacy with Jesus had something to do with his ability to forgive his persecutors and keep Satan out of the house of his heart because his eyes were so fixated on Jesus and he was so intimate with him it was seemingly natural to be like Jesus. He's just reflecting the one that he's looking at all the time. Okay, so we keep the enemy out of our house by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Okay, fixing our eyes on Jesus is the solution to almost all of our problems. All right, nine out of 10, 10 problems, they can be solved by looking at Jesus more. Like the solution is more of Jesus. Y'all need more Jesus. You ever seen that shirt before? Y'all need more Jesus, right? Or the solution is to get our eyes off of our situation, off of what's going on here and onto him. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, it helps us keep Satan out in so many different ways, but I wanna point out a few. Okay, the first we just see right away here in, in, in Stephen's death. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we forgive those who hurt us. Right, it's a natural overflow. As we look at the one who gave his life for us, we can't help but give our lives for others. We can't help but forgive others. And Paul gets at this idea in Ephesians 4.32. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Okay, so, so those who spend extravagant time looking at the one who is kind and tenderhearted and forgiving can't help but also be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. It's a natural Overflow, because Jesus has forgiven us of so much, how could we not forgive others of what they've done against us? Because what we've done against Jesus is way worse than what others have done against us. Okay, fixing our eyes on Jesus keeps bitterness out of our hearts. It keeps Satan on the outside of our house, so to speak, and it helps us to forgive, but it also helps us to love. Okay, the apostle John gets at this. He says, we love because he first loved us, right? So, you, so your attempt to love God it's not like trying to earn something from him. It's not like, oh, I gotta like, like try to love God and love people so he will love me. No, instead we respond to the love that he's already given us by loving God and loving people. It's a response. As we experience the love of Jesus, we can't help but love others. We're like, if you love me this much, how could I not love other people? So that's the second thing. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we love others when it's difficult. Fixing our eyes on Jesus keeps self-centeredness out of our hearts, right? Self-centeredness is the opposite of love, right? It keeps that out of our hearts. If, if you're struggling with being self-absorbed 
and unloving, you gotta start looking at Jesus more. Right? Look at his example and receive his love and it will send you out to love other people. Right? When we look at Jesus, we resist bitterness and self-centeredness and become more forgiving and loving. We see something else with Peter. Okay, so we looked at Paul, John, Peter, just all like, like the OGs of the church here. We're on to Peter now. He says it this way in his letter, the other way that, that this changes us. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So I find this interesting that he starts with God's holiness. He's not saying be holy so God will love you. Be holy so God will see you. Instead he's saying see the holy one and then respond to that by being holy like him. Right? The call to resist sinful passions is rooted in, in actually looking at how Jesus resisted sinful passion. It's rooted in looking at his holiness. As we look at his holiness, it propels us to be holy. Right? So when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we become holy. Okay, so it helps us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, it helps us to be more forgiving and loving and holy. It helps us to become more like Jesus. And the writer to the Hebrews, he, he gets at one more way that, that fixing our eyes on Jesus helps us keep Satan out of our house in, in chapter 12, verse one through 11. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, uh, now let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, right? Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Okay, so when we look at Jesus, we resist discouragement and are compelled to endure just like he did, right? It gives us the grit to keep going. As we lock eyes with the one who endured the cross, we are able to endure our crosses, right? This is the, or the last thing I'll point out today is as we look at Jesus, it helps us to persevere through opposition. It helps us to persevere, to keep going, to get back up. It helps us to, to resist the enemy and welcome Jesus in. That's what looking at Jesus does, right? As we look at him, we become more forgiving and loving and holy and resolved and we keep the enemy out and we let Jesus in. A person that has his or her, her eyes on Jesus becomes a walking move of God. That's the goal of this whole thing is to become walking revivals in our community. As we're looking at Jesus, he is so transforming us. We're becoming so like him that everywhere we go, we're bringing the very glory and power of God just like Stephen did. A church that has their eyes on Jesus will bring the next move of God with them wherever they go. As we keep our eyes on Jesus, we become walking moves of God. As we seek the next move of God, we need to remember that the goal is not to just have a season of revival where we get really excited, but then it's followed by decline. Instead, the goal is to perpetually walk in revival. If we can keep looking at Jesus, we can be like Moses and Stephen, whose faces shine with the glory of God. Okay, so with all that in mind, I wanna ask you a question. Have you let the devil into your house? Have you given him a guest room in your heart? Is he trying and actively trying to prevent you from being a walking move of God? Specifically, have you given in to bitterness? 
have you accommodated it and said, oh, I know that person really hurt me, so they kind of deserve my bitterness? Have you given into it? Your spiritual vitality depends on your commitment to forgiving your enemies. It depends on it. You have to get free of that bitterness that's entangling you. It's killing you. If you're up against a wall spiritually and God feels distant to you, the first thing I'm gonna ask you is have you forgiven those who have hurt you? Because every, or not every time, but at the root of of many struggles is bitterness. Have you given into bitterness? Today is the day to forgive. Lay it at the Lord's feet. That's why it's in the Lord's prayer to forgive those who have trespassed against us because God knows we need to do it every day. Forgive those who have hurt you. Let go of the desire to get revenge. Get rid of that spite in your heart. And the way you can know if you've actually forgiven someone is if you genuinely want their welfare. If you're wondering, I don't know if I've forgiven, I've tried. Well, if you still want bad things for them, if you haven't forgiven them, I've been there, okay? So no one's throwing stones at you today, but, but ask God to give you a heart for their welfare today. Allow Jesus to so warm your heart that you can't help but forgive others. It's just natural. In Matthew 6, Jesus said this, and this is just a warning, right? He, he said this, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When I read that, that is sobering to me, right? I'm like, oh, I better figure this out. Lord, help me forgive, right? So if you're struggling with the resolve to actually try to forgive, well, hopefully this gives you some motivation, right? It is time to forgive, okay? So so for you, maybe that's how you've allowed the enemy into your house. Or, or maybe you've allowed him in, not through bitterness specifically, but just through self-centeredness and through a lack of love. You've become a very self-absorbed person. Allow the love of Jesus that compelled him to embrace the cross to move you to become loving today. Allow his example to stir you to love and to reject self-centeredness and to kick the enemy out of your house. Or maybe the enemy has gotten through... Uh, or through some other sin, uh, through some other habitual sin. You've given into, or to maybe one of the sins that, that Paul listed in Ephesians 4, like greed or, or lying or impurity, and, and holiness has not been a, a term that could describe you, right? And, and today you need to, uh, to say no to sin and say, enemy, you do not have a place here. I'm not going to allow sin to set up shop in my life. Ask yourself the question, have you accommodated sin in your life? If you're trying to excuse a behavior, you've probably accommodated sin. If you have to explain to people why it's not a sin, you've probably accommodated sin, right? I have that sometimes while I sit with people and they're like, well, it's not really a sin if you really think about it. And it's like the idea sometimes I feel like is to get as close to the line as possible. Like how close can I get without screwing up, right? Like that totally misses the gospel, right? If we have truly encountered the love of Jesus, we wanna run from sin. I want nothing to do with it. As I said several times a couple weeks ago, sin is nasty, right? That was like the whole sermon one week. So anyways, that was Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira sermon. It was a good day that day. But today, get your eyes on Jesus. Allow his holiness to propel you to holiness. Allow the fact that he's perfect and matchless to compel you to want to be like him. And be holy as he is holy. And it starts with repenting of your sins. Turn from your sins. Ask him for forgiveness, and he will forgive you if you ask. Ask him for forgiveness and pursue holiness. Or maybe the enemy is trying to come into your house through discouragement. You face a lot of internal or external or maybe both resistance to your faith, 
and you want to give up today, you are on your last straw. Maybe you came to church today like, hey, this is my last attempt. Have you given in to a spirit of discouragement today? If so, look at Jesus. Look at the one who endured the cross and commit to following his way. He took on the cross with joy. Take up your cross with joy and kick the devil out of your house. Again, the answer to almost any problem is to look at Jesus. And this is why we need to be a church that prioritizes his presence. Right? We want prayer and worship and the true preaching of God's word to be at the center of our church because we wanna look at Jesus and have that propel us to be like Jesus and not just here at church, though, we want your life to be animated by, by looking at Jesus. We want you to set up rhythms in your life that help you look at Jesus through spending time with him every day, through, through prayer and Bible reading, or maybe every week on the, or you take a Sabbath for 24 hours where you stop and you worship and you rest and delight, or you have times of silence and solitude each day where you're just looking at Jesus. We want spending time with Jesus to be a marker in each person's life in our church because we know that the only way we can become like Jesus is if we actively look at Jesus. All right, so I wanna call you to that today. If you have not made spending time with the Lord a priority in your life, today is the day. If you're looking for a sign, here's your sign. Get it in your life, get it in your calendar. Spend time with Jesus. You cannot live the Christian life without spending time with the one who the Christian life is all about. Right, so spend time with Jesus. Stop making excuses. I don't care if you're not a morning person. Do it at night if you need to, right? But stop making excuses. We are the kings and queens of excuses. Oh, I stubbed my toe yesterday. I need to rest, right? Like, like no, say, it's life or death, right? We need to spend time with the Lord. It's not an obligation, but it's an invitation to experience the fullness of the life that Jesus has for us. As a church, we need to commit to looking at Jesus and, and and keeping the enemy out. As we look at Jesus, we won't just see a move of God begin, but we'll see it sustained as we become walking moves of God. All right, the next move of God will begin and continue as we look at Jesus. That's the main idea, the big point today. Now, the next move of God will begin and continue as we look at Jesus. Back in October of, of 2019, when we decided to plant Scent Church, uh, the enemy attacked us in so many different ways. It was like immediate, like we made the decision, like the next day the enemy was attacking us. He was desperately trying to get into the house of our hearts, so to speak, or get into our house. And right after we decided to plant, I came down with mono. Again, I'm not saying every sickness is like the devil attacking you, but, but this felt like that. We couldn't figure out what it was for like, uh, several weeks and it's it sidelined me and discouraged me for a month and then shortly after that COVID broke out and it was just so difficult to fundraise try fundraising when pastors don't see their people at all for like like several months You're like hey give us money They're like hey I'd just like to see my people we uh, church planter leave me alone please right so fundraising was difficult trying to gather people together was difficult like hey let's all gather together in a huge crowd when everyone's telling you that you're gonna die if you do so Sounds like a good idea, right? It was so discouraging in that season. It was so tempting to just give up. You know, nothing seemed to go right. I remember saying, I don't know who I said it to, but I, I just told someone, I said, I feel like I have no favor right now with God, like zero favor. Before in ministry, it always felt like I had some sense of favor from God. And actually that's gonna be our next sermon series is favor. So come next week for that. But I always felt like I had favor. And, and, and this was the first time in my ministry, I felt like I had no favor. I'm like, everything I try to do, it feels like I'm hitting a wall. 
And on top of this, I was dealing with some relational struggle. Someone had hurt me or some people had hurt me pretty bad in this process. And I was just kind of trying to process through this. I, I had never been hurt like that. And, and it was really difficult to forgive, right? So I'm like, you know, trying to be a pastor, trying to plan a church. And I'm dealing with my own junk in the background. And it really wasn't until March of 2022. So not that long ago that I was able to fully move on from that pain and forgive that, that person fully. It actually happened in the kids room back here. I was meeting with a small group of, of pastors and, and processing my pain. And one of them, and he's just a no-nonsense guy. Some of you are gonna know who I'm talking about. He's just a no-nonsense guy. He just, he's, he, he shoots very straight. He's one of those guys who, who's trying to rebuke me, I feel like. I'm like, you knock it off. It's like, I'm doing good this week. I don't need a rebuke. But, uh, but he just said, he's sitting there with his legs crossed. And he's like, Daniel, it is time for you to forgive. He's like, stop, or stop wallowing in this. Right? Stop repeating this over and over again in your head. You need to make a decision to be done with this. It's gonna kill you if you don't. And I'm like, okay then. Is it that easy? Just like, do it, right? And he reminded me, he said, if you don't forgive, Jesus ain't gonna forgive you. Well, and over the next few days, it was supernatural. As Jesus just melted my heart, all of a sudden I had like this supernatural compassion for the person who had hurt me. It came out of nowhere. I'm like, wow, like I can see things through their perspective now, not just through my own. And it just so happens that during this season was when I started to, uh, to really prioritize my prayer life in a new way. I think that had something to do with it as well. As I looked at Jesus, I was able to forgive and to truly move on. And there was just a difference. Before it was like, I would pray the Lord's prayer, like, oh Lord, help me forgive this person. And now it was like, no, I genuinely want good for them. I don't even need to pray that because I want good for their life. I want good things for them. And immediately after, I kid you not, like there was an explosion of fruit in our church. It was like immediate. Like all of a sudden, like there was a season in our church, guys, like for about six months before this, where it felt like we had no new people coming through our doors on Sundays. I remember if like one new person came and I'm like, yeah, everybody, there's a new person. Look, look, you know. And all of a sudden new people started coming. I'm like, oh, okay. And all of a sudden I had more power in my preaching. All of a sudden the altars were full. It just seemed like there was an explosion of fruit after this. And also my own life, like I was starting to change and transform it in different ways. Forgiveness was the key that unlocked what God wanted to do next in my life. How has the enemy gotten into your house? And what do you need to do today to start looking at Jesus and kick that sucker out, right? Kick the enemy out of your house. What do you need to do? Do you need to start spending time with the Lord? Do you need to start praying? Or do you need to get into the prayer room? Get in the prayer room, guys. If we want the next move of God, our church has to commit to corporate prayer. Until we have like, people come into the prayer room, I don't think we're gonna see the next move of God. Like, that's the key, the prayer room. You want one key, the it's the prayer room. Get in the prayer room. Let's, let's commit to praying together as a church. Or, or maybe for you, Sunday morning services have just been like kind of an option for you. And I wanna encourage you, make it a priority. Like have that be the most important thing on your calendar in the week. I'm going to church. I'm gonna be there. I wanna be there when God's people are gathering. Right, because the reason we do church is not because we want you to check off a box, like, look, you did a good job this week, good job. No, it's because we want you to look at Jesus. And I know for me, there's something powerful when we come together that helps me look at Jesus. So, so that's what we want for you. It's just that one more opportunity to look at Jesus. Or do you need to forgive someone today? Maybe that's what you need to do. Do you need to repent of a sin that you've been accommod or accommodating in your life? Ask the Lord what he wants you to do. And I can guarantee you that he has something that he wants you to do to look at him more and, and, and to keep the enemy out of your house. There's gotta be something that he wants you to do today. The enemy, he, he desperately wants to kill the next move of God before it ever gets started. He wants to kill God's activity in your life and in our church. 
if we're going to be a people who shine like Stephen and Moses, and if we're gonna become, or become walking moves of God, we need to resist his schemes and get our eyes on Jesus. The next move of God depends on it. All right, let's stand all across this room. We're gonna close. <clears throat> Right, we're gonna end here. Just a couple ways to respond. We're gonna respond just by having you raise a hand to the Lord. We'll have eyes closed and no one will be looking around, but just like, like saying, hey, that applies to me. And then I'm gonna open up the altars and the prayer team's gonna be available. And I wanna encourage you, get out the altars today. Like Lexi was saying, the altar, there's something powerful. If you need to forgive someone specifically, you need to get to the altar today, okay? So, so two ways to respond. If you have your eyes closed and your head's bowed. The first is this. If you're just, if you're very honest and you would say, I haven't really been looking at Jesus, specifically like you haven't been spending time with him on a daily basis, or you've just been letting the things of this world distract you, like you spend way more time on your phone, on the news and social media than you do with Jesus. Like if you've just been looking at the wrong things and today you need to start looking at him more, can you raise your hand right now? Just saying, hey, that's me. I need to start looking at Jesus more. Tons of hands going up. Yeah, I just need to look at Jesus more. All right, let's pray together. And I have my hand up too, because I need to look at Jesus more. So uh, Jesus right now, I pray that you'd help us to be a church that just looks at you, right? And, and it doesn't get old to us. Like, like uh, or we could just stand in your presence for hours and look at you. We could be in the prayer room for, for days and look at you because we just love looking at you, Lord. God, help us to, to stop looking at our phones so much, to stop looking at those who have hurt us so much, to stop looking at our situations and to start looking at you more. Lord, you are the prize of our hearts. Help us to be a church that is fixated on you. In Jesus' name. Go ahead and put your hands down and then just one more way to respond today and then we'll get into a worship song. But if you need to get free of bitterness, someone's hurt you and there's some unforgiveness in your heart and today you wanna at least take that first step and say, I want to forgive the person. Help me to forgive that person, Lord. If that's you, every head bowed, every eye closed is between you and the Lord. If that's you, can you slip up your hand? Like, I just need to forgive someone. I had lots of hands going up all across this room. I just need to forgive someone. Yes, Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for all these hands going up. I want to pray for you. So, Lord, right now, first of all, Lord, I want to sympathize or empathize with all the hands going up. There's some some deep hurt in this room. There's uh, uh, there's bitterness that is trying to latch on to our hearts. Lord, I just just pray right now that your presence would be so near to each heart that is struggling with bitterness, that they would feel your warm embrace, that you have seen the pain they've gone through, you have seen what's happened to them and you sympathize with them. You're not this far off this far off God, but you are a, a great high priest who's able to sympathize with us. And Lord, right now I pray that they would just feel you weeping with them over the pain that they've experienced. And Lord, out of that, I pray that we'd be a people who forgive those who've hurt us. Even the most outrageous sins, we would forgive people. Just be quick to forgive, be quick to be like you. Lord, make it easy, almost easy to forgive. Just like it happened for me where just like a moment, something changed. Make it easy to forgive. God, warm our hearts. We love you, Jesus. We thank you in your name. Amen, amen. All right, so the altars are open. Prayer team's available up here. We're gonna end with this song, Lord Send Revival. It's just a song asking for revival. And as we close out this series, not just the sermon, but the series, let's ask God for revival. And also let's forgive those who have hurt us. Let's kick the devil out. All right, let's go ahead and worship.